to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I could not be more excited to be joined once again by my friend John Pratt, the recently retired executive director of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. John, thanks for taking time. Ah, thanks for having me, Steve. It was quite a momentous occasion here in Minnesota when you announced that you were going to retire. There was a um, thoughtful process about how replacements would be um, considered and thought and, and noticed to community and all sorts of good things. But even after all of that has now happened, the day finally came when you uh, stepped aside uh, for the first time in a very long time. Uh, and it got me thinking as somebody who follows the collective work of nonprofits of how things have really changed since you and a group of other people decided we need to band together, uh, that we shall you know, hang together or we shall surely hang separately. Uh, and and what the world has changed like. So um, let me begin by just asking you to reflect a little bit about the origination of the Council mm -hmm. of Nonprofits here in Minnesota and how that work has been echoed and happening in other places that you're aware of. Sure. The Well, just to put some time periods on it. So MCN, uh, Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, was started January 1, 1987, uh, and that was a point, kind of, you know, the, the mid-80s were really the time when people started to think about a nonprofit sector. And right. uh, before that, you know, United Way was kind of the designated spokesperson for nonprofits who are mostly seen as either social service or some separate entities in arts, environment, healthcare, education, uh, but seeing them together as uh, sort of a distinct section of the economy with its own relationships with government, uh, its own ways of getting revenue, its own relationship with employees and governance. Uh, that was kind of sort of really came into its own in the 1980s. And that was also when uh, a number of states started thinking of, huh, if there are chambers of commerce that represent the interests and share information among businesses, shouldn't the nonprofit sector have the same? Right. So beginning that in a time when uh, tools to do organizing work like this were much more limited, we were just reflecting ahead of this recording about um, the, the Internet really fundamentally changing how people are able to find like-minded souls and, and communicate with them about um, ideas that they want to share. Um, you didn't have those tools, so you had to go do it the old-fashioned way. How do you start from a group of people thinking we ought to do this to we're incorporating and here's how we're going to found our board of directors and start asking people to become members or people organizations to become members uh, in in the minnesota case uh, mm -hmm. we had sort of a predecessor organization uh, which was called the philanthropy project and that was a group of people who decided we should change the way philanthropy operates uh, get more funds going to women's groups communities of color, rural organizations, low-income organizations. That group lasted for three years. And at the end of the philanthropy project, uh, at the end of 86, decided, hmm, we should really also look at government. We should also look at mm -hmm. cost-saving services, ways to join together. And so it, the philanthropy project sort of birthed the Council of Nonprofits. 
But how do you then go from we're going to be a, a sustaining thing with a slightly broader mission than perhaps yeah. just reforming how philanthropy worked, although that has always been part of the conversation, yes. um, from you know several folks that you just know to you know reaching across the whole state when uh, you know postage is expensive and phone calls that were long distance then yeah. and you had to pay more money for them. I mean, it's such a different world of thinking. How do you reach a constituency that isn't yet engaged? in this idea of we must collectively think about our own interests. Yeah, there was a part of it that was selling the sizzle before the steak was oh, there, sure. of just saying, we're going to do these things. So we're, we're going to uh, establish a, a more positive government relationships, or we're going to conduct conferences and workshops. The... Uh, actually, the first month that MCN was started, so this is January 1987, the governor proposed eliminating the nonprofit sales tax exemption. Oh. And this is sort of a threat. Right, right away. So our obvious case of we should take this on. Uh, we had Joe Savaggio, who then was president of the Project for Pride and Living, mm -hmm. testified against it. Uh, we had op-eds in the paper. Uh, and it was sort of a good example of uh, this is why we should unite, what we have in common. Uh, also, that first year held an annual conference uh, with a Greater Minnesota Caucus with you know different workshops, speakers uh, talking about one of the issues nonprofits were facing then, which was a lot of criticism that nonprofits were unfairly competing with small business. Oh, and this was the. White House Small Business uh, Conference had highlighted this is one of the top three problems facing business. So this is still Reagan. This is uh, in yes. that part of the eighties. Oh wow. Okay, long time back. All right. Right. So it's so the issues. I would say you know sort of a key theme for MCN has been other issues as assigned. So you don't <laughs> necessarily know well, well what is going to be important at any time period. So it could be government funding. Mm -hmm. It could be health insurance, uh, it could be sort of improving nonprofit governance. So you must have, putting that first conference together and thinking about the idea of who's going to pay for this, sponsors, and uh, trying to convince charities to register and presumably pay a, a registration yes. fee. And uh, to this day, I think that's always a, a mental barrier for some organizations to go, um, gosh, a few extra dollars uh, just feels hard to spend. So on things like staff development and participating in learning and all that um, must have been even more of a challenge when there wasn't as much of a reputation of, oh, I've been to that conference. I learned a right. lot there. That was really helpful to me, where um, that has just become an expectation with events that have been done through the Minnesota Council on Nonprofits that when they call people together, you get valuable time and energy out of that. It's really helpful. But at the beginning, sending postcards and making phone calls, I assume, is just how you tried to convince people, come try this and learn with us. Yeah, it's, yeah it is that challenge. How do you aggregate a market? that doesn't know it's part of a market. Right. Uh, so it was a lot of direct outreach, including phone calls. And But I think people had, had an interest. Minnesota is also just a great state to form an association. Mm. Uh, it helps that the state capital and the largest metro area are the same, that it's in relatively the middle of the state, mm -hmm. uh, that the university is there, which also provides resources, uh, that those that combination 
uh, meant that at the end of the first year, we had 300 members. Oh, wow, that fast. Yeah, oh, and, no a, and a key part of that was if nonprofits value what MCN does, they should be willing to pay for it. Right. So at the beginning, uh, the organization was about one-third earned income, two-thirds grant-funded. Uh, now, 30 years later, it's two-thirds earned income, one-third grant supported and the grant support now is especially for public policy uh, and and some of the research and you know broader activities uh, and thing activities that support greater Minnesota which is you know economically it's harder to have regional coordinators and provide that on dues alone yeah right ahead of recording we were just talking we were reading a book about history and i'm a history minor from my undergraduate days in the 80s and uh thinking back about what is priming minnesota to start thinking about those things we mentioned coming to the end of the reagan era but before that in minnesota we had what was affectionately referred to as the minnesota miracle where um the state came together and decided that a better distribution of resources to support education and needs and whatnot would be aggregating state revenue and redistributing to local governments and different ways so that schools were more equal and and it really worked and i think that that idea of um coming into all, all of the the public zeitgeist around the reagan years and all these things may have been the prep, the prepping moment when you said we need to get together and think about sharing ideas and resources again like we you know did in this public sector thing uh, may have been a harder sell 10 years earlier um before you know that was trying to be sort of systematically dismantled at the federal level anyway um i i'm i don't know if there was ever any thinking about the changes in Minnesota that led to why are we so cooperative? Why are we ready to kind of take this on? Uh, I, I imagine as you're building the airplane, you don't think about the design of it. Right. And of course, the fascinating part of history is people have different explanations or right. <laughs> point to different aspects. Uh, so another view of Minnesota and sort of the cooperative spirit mm -hmm. is if you look at during the Depression, uh, Minnesota had some of the most bitter uh, conflicts between labor and management. Oh, yeah. Uh, including Teamsters strike in 34, all exactly, that stuff. Yeah. People being killed uh, in, in the streets of Minneapolis during labor riots. Yeah. Um, and then sort of, and at that point, uh, Minnesota was a below average state. So if you looked at per capita income, we were one of the poorer states at that time. So Part of the history was going from that period to now when we're an above average state, uh, we're above average, we're number one for voter participation, mm -hmm. which can be sort of a proxy for how engaged are people, how, how involved do they feel in the society. Uh, and it was also a time when sort of the 50s, uh, and some people will credit the Dayton family, uh, founders of Dayton Hudson Corporation, which then became Target. Right. Uh, but five brothers who sat on different corporate boards who basically log-rolled or convinced each one to copy the other to engage in corporate philanthropy and believing that we could do it all. That So we could have strong social services, we could have state-funded social services, we could have a strong university, and we could have strong arts organizations. And that vision of, yes, this community could have all those things and do it as a sort of full state 
uh, even to the point of naming all the sports teams after the state, not the city, mm. was sort of an example of, yeah, we're, we have this cooperative spirit. Uh, and I would say that led to sort of above average nonprofit organizations as well, with tons of corporate involvement, corporate leaders serving on boards uh, and making contributions. And then, so you have this sort of rich structure, which sort of begged, is there an infrastructure there to support it, which was just this perfect environment right. for the Council on Nonprofits and the Council on Foundations, which is sort of our counterpart organization bringing together the foundations. Right. So the the strong out of the gate is really interesting to kind of learn about the, the environment in the state and the things that may have prepped that. I'm just impressed as heck that you have 300 members, you know, kind of right away of a, a, a statewide conference right away. Um, those are things that even having been a member of the organization and been to events and whatnot, I wasn't aware of, of those strong starts. Um, but of course, you've continued to build on that. Um, well, we all collectively, you mm -hmm. were there for uh, you know, so much of it, but um, I know that you're not the kind of person that's going to say, oh, yeah, I did all that and nobody helped out. I mean, w w there was a lot of people with this uh, energy. But as you started moving through into the 90s and seeing the um, the growth of the organization, um, what can you think of or reflect on from that time that kind of pushes us into the 21st century and, and thinking more about how we do business today that might have started changing even back then? Yeah, it's, I think we recognized early on, too, that, you know, if you're trying to build an association or aggregate a market, you need a list. So you yeah. need to know what are what is the potential market. Uh, and a lot of that lends itself to technology. Um, so before the Internet, uh, actually, we had looked at different bull bulletin board systems oh, okay. and created a sort of online system for nonprofits called C3Net. So it was... A and what we we bought some software that was originally designed to be used for dating programs. Oh no, kidding! That's interesting. And just modified it, and then so any nonprofit could have their own email. So we had email between users. We had real time chat. Uh, we had a job board. We had lists of grants. Uh, wow. We had articles. Um, we we bought modems, so we had 2,400 baud modems, and we would go install them on people's computers. But this was early days, yeah. uh, and people were very afraid, even then, of viruses. And oh, no so kidding. convincing oh, okay. them. So it was it was a good system, uh, and it it actually provided a good function for about 50 organizations. So, in, or at least 50 people. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it was used to set up lunch dates uh, or meetings. Um, I think the job board got increasing use, uh, and that was 1989. Wow. And so it was a couple years later that Internet became available and email and organizations own websites around 92 and 93. Mm-hmm. But to have that foresight, about, especially functions like the job board, which um, for folks that aren't familiar with the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits job board, I do encourage you to take a look at it. But other organizations have, of course, replicated that in their areas and, and areas of expertise. There's even some more um, kind of niche, more specific ones. I think um, Springboard runs one, for example. There's a, a Springboard for the Arts here in Minnesota. But the the 
The job board uh, and and vendor listing that's at the Minnesota Council on Nonprofits has been one of those things that has just been a rock solid relied upon tool for since I've been involved in the organization. And I, I started working professionally in nonprofits. I've been volunteering in the 90s, but I started my first paid job in 97 um, for nonprofits and already knew then that these were tools that were going to be very important for us as we did our work and as I continued on. Um, but really interesting to me to know that it had its genesis before the 90s, before people were getting all the AOL disks in the mail and everything, that you were still trying to think, one area where we know we need to be in community is around this idea of finding qualified people that want to work in these places and training up people that need qualifications and sharing. So um, that's been a really important part of the value, I think, of the membership is the folks that are nonprofits that are members get to use that service. Right. Um, I, I have to imagine, and I know you've done surveys um, about what members want and need, that must rank up there fairly often as a reason that people are continuing to renew those memberships. Right. And it was sort of that initial demand and sort yeah. of it's the best products are the ones people think up themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was one where as soon as MCN was formed, people started sending us paper copies in the mail of job postings. And we had a bulletin board outside our office. Oh. And it was literally a cork bulletin board mm -hmm. that with tax that would hold up the job announcements. And then... That was what morphed into an online service. A bulletin board that is a little bit more accessible. Yes. With that 2400 baud modem or, you know, maybe someday up to 57K, that's going to, you know, that day would come. Uh, but that service, I, I think, is sort of emblematic of um, we do have a particular set of experiences and skills and things that, that serve the nonprofit community um, that doesn't just work with a Craigslist listing of a job or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, an Indeed thing where it really does help to have this space to talk in. So um, I assume, again, when, and when you check in with members, this is one of the things that they're just constantly coming back to is we need that service for sure, right? Yeah, and we should say that the, the job board is free to members, right. and then there's a fee if they're non-member organizations or sometimes government units. Mm -hmm. uh, government often sees the people who work in the nonprofit sector as a very desirable experience right. group that they would like to hire from. So that one, right away, useful and has stayed useful to this day and continues to be. Are there other um, program areas that you remember that you know, you've experimented with and eventually retired? Like that was good for its time, but no longer in 2020 or 2021 did we need that thing? Or have most things continued on? I would say a lot of uh, sort of a core value of MCN mm -hmm. has been sort of data continuity mm -hmm. of if you're going to provide information, it shouldn't just be a big burp, you know, and then one and done. Uh, so we've published a grants directory now for over 30 years, list of the most active Minnesota foundations, uh, and now have added government agencies to that. Um, salary and benefit survey has been going for 20 years, so that's produced every two years. Mm -hmm. uh, nonprofit economy report also every year, uh, sort of giving nonprofits current economic performance information. So I would say some of the events, uh, you know, we had done uh, some events around sort of bringing together environmental groups mm. or some of the um, sort of more 
subject-specific activities, uh, we ended up deciding that we want to focus on functional areas. So like fundraising, leadership, sort of essential activities like technology or uh, development. Mm-hmm. So as you considered, you know, that growing that responsibility, adding that conference, doing this next thing, I mean, uh, the organization itself just continued to grow. I remember not that many years ago um, expanding your office space where you um, decided to stay where you were and build out rather than move or whatever. But being able to do more things in person in that space rather than having to right. have smaller convenings and, and other things. The large ones, of course, still need very major menus, but, venues, but the uh, um, some of the the lunch and learn type things where it's 30 or 40 people. Now you've got room for that many folks in your own space and don't have to worry about the logistics of coordinating or renting or whatever else it may be with partners. And those I think continue to be valuable too. Although of course, in the last year and a half, um, everybody has had to try to figure out how do we continue to build community when getting together in person isn't safe and isn't the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, I, I don't remember when your first, um, uh, intended to be in-person event had to switch to online, but I'm going to guess, you know, May, June, whatever of 2020. It was, yeah, it was April. So oh, Mar- right away in April, as soon yeah, as that. March okay. 10th of 2020, okay. we had the Greater Minnesota Nonprofit Summit in Marshall, Minnesota. And then April 15th was going to be the finance conference, finance and sustainability, and then had to quickly convert that to virtual so went to a Zoom platform uh, and then bought a license to have up to a thousand participants. And at that time, we also started doing briefings with the governor and different commissioners for nonprofits. And sort of basically it became all Zoom uh, in 2020 for the rest of the year. And I happen to have a little inside knowledge about the um, preparatory work that that was happening at the council before knowing that there was going to be right. a global pandemic around the idea of more distance learning and engagement. E-learning, I think maybe was a word we were kicking around, but whatever it was, the council was early on thinking of how do we do delivery that doesn't necessarily rely on lots of travel and cost and all of those things. Um, and I don't know what began that part of the conversation in your mission expansion to think about those things, you know, before there was a, a pandemic that required it. Do you remember how that started? Yeah, it was really an entrepreneurial staff member, huh? Sandra Reese, who decided she had been our associate director right. and wanted to go through a career change. And she became very interested in sort of meeting technologies and sort of different modes of engaging people, including online. So came up with an e-learning initiative uh, part of the, our build-out was to have an e-learning studio uh, to be able to record and present, uh, and then training other staff as producers uh, to support this. And it's it's a lot more work, especially with conferences, where you have right. so many different sessions uh, figuring out. So we had held a number of online national conferences uh, through the e-learning initiative before the pandemic. So it was perfect preparation and Sandra was like in exactly the right place to be able to launch that and now she's both continuing this activity for MCN but also consulting with a number of foundations and organizations around the country about how to sort of effectively engage not just webinars but really more 
multi-way communications. Right, which has been such a critical part of what MCN does is to help their members learn. Here's some things that we've all um, figured out because most of those online or most of those events that uh, um, the member organizations had been planning ended up shifting to online and needed to learn more about how do we do that better? Because um, if it is just sit in front of a computer screen and watch somebody talk, which is what a lot of people had been doing for their you know paid jobs all day long, it was really hard to get engagement for those things and thinking of how we can as a system of people together learn what are the the things that can be more dynamic and more engaging of community and still have us connected to the mission and the work even when physically it's not as safe to be in the same spaces anymore so i know as uh, um, an associate member i think is how we uh, uh, folks that are members that are not uh, actually incorporated as nonprofits are referred to in the in the thing but um, my company has been a member for for a long time because I get so much out of learning from those sorts of opportunities of how do we do better engagement if we can't do it this way? How do we do better outreach online? How do we just adapt to the world that it is? Um, and, you know, you've been doing that or you had been doing that for a very long time. And I, I had the privilege of serving on the MCN board for a very short period of time, 15 years ago, 20, whatever in the world it is now. Um, and even then we had uh, at the board level been doing the the best practice stuff that we encourage nonprofits to do, which is to think about um, executive transition. How do you have a plan in place for when the time is right? Not that you then were planning to go anywhere, but it's good for the board to be ready to think about those things. And eventually, of course, the time came uh, when you did go to your board and say, it's now time to start mm -hmm. thinking about this plan that we're doing. Um, uh, those are conversations that I'm just interested of um, having known that there was already sort of an intended process of this is how it will go when the time is right. Um, that when the time was right, um, when you go to those folks and say, all right, now let's begin. Um, how did you find that process to be from the person who was giving notice as opposed to, you know, supporting lots of other organizations right. in transition? Well, it's, it's interesting since our board is elected by the membership mm -hmm. uh, and it's about half executive directors of nonprofits, half sort of other nonprofit leaders uh, in organizations, it's also a group that wants to do it the right way. Yeah. So there was, uh, you know, over the years, there have been concerns about turnover in nonprofits and yeah. wanting to do the succession well. And knowing that changing executive leadership often is a fragile moment for organizations and can be, you know, especially for smaller groups, can be sort of a danger yeah. point. Uh, so wanting to be prepared. So we had a succession plan of what to do if there's an immediate vacancy, someone gets appointed to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. or if there's a sort of planned vacancy, if someone's ready to step down or take a different job. Uh, so we had a policy in position, uh, including allocating funding for a search firm if necessary. And the board, once I told them, sort of my timeline that I was ready to move on by summer of 2021 uh, that then started a process of appointing a search committee uh, and had a eight-member search committee uh, of board members and former board members who are interested in sort of having a successful sort of bringing in new leadership 
uh, and both looking at sort of existing leadership. And we have, uh, at that time, our associate director was Nanoko Sato, uh, and sort of had come to MCN from California uh, with nine years' experience as an executive director, and then took on the associate director position with MCN, mm-hmm. sort of doing a lot of the internal management and finance and staff oversight. Uh, so it was well prepared. So we had a strong internal candidate, right. and certainly there would be interest on the outside as well. Uh, the I can't say a lot about sort of the exact process they used. Sure, but I think interesting to think about, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the founding director, right, of MCN? Yes, I actually wrote the articles and bylaws. Right, and- so going through the transition from the initial director, whether that's three years down the line or, you know, 30 yeah. plus years down the line, um, it's, it's still a transition from that initial director. And I think that having been involved for so long, um, presumably, Presumably, this is really an area where, you know, your board and other folks need to take the lead and you will consult right. and provide yep. information as they need it. But you you got to not be as directory in that process as you maybe had been in the past. That must have, you know, everybody intellectually knowing that must have been different from then executing it. Did, did it feel a little strange to go, I have to, you know, uh, this is the intention. I'm stepping back. Yeah. This is the first part of that process. Yeah. No, you definitely put your finger on sort of an it's both an awkward and and an appropriate sort of shift of but yes i was very used to preparing materials uh for board meetings preparing agendas uh sort of teeing up subjects and this is no this is the search committee is on its own Uh, and and part of the strength of their decision making had to be it's not sort of this isn't the old leader's designee uh, this is our autonomous decision. Right. Uh, Which they did, um, after that process, they went through, come to the decision to um, bring Nanoko in as the new executive director. So she had moved from the associate position into executive director, yep. um, which, um, you know, happened just a few months ago now as we're recording this, but um, is exciting. And now uh, announced that uh, Kari Anastad has moved into the associate director position, who's been with the council for a little while, who I could not be more thrilled to see um, take that expanded role because I think she's just such a talent and, and um, what, a, what a gift for the whole sector to have her in that place too. So the organization is you know in strong stead and you've got to feel good about where things have gotten to. But part of why I asked you here is to look back a little bit towards the idea of looking forward. Um, that you know the podcast is called Next in Nonprofits. Right. As much as I love Perfect. the history um, of you know nonprofits, to understand these things teed up to where we are now. But now, um, as you do move in that first transition uh, from the founding director to a new executive director, um, but lots of other challenges and things. I'm just fascinated with where collectively do we go? And you know, one of the things that you've started um, doing before this and that I see happening more now is I think uh, being willing to be that voice to um, hold our partners in philanthropy accountable to um, this work and not just uh, feel like some nonprofit organizations that I work with do where it's like, oh gosh, we can't criticize that thought because we go to them for money and we don't want them to feel bad about us. So we, you know, maybe we, we hold our tongues a little bit, but especially in the last few years, I think one of the last podcasts we recorded was about donor advised funds and asking for more accountability in that. Um, now they're between here and there. There's now uh, the ACE Act in Congress uh, to um, actually accelerate the use of charitable money, getting it out there and actually doing mission work. 
Um, but there is that, uh, to me anyway, seems like this this shift of saying part of the nonprofit mission, part of us coming together is to speak together to say we need all of our partners to be different sometimes, whether they feel like that's the right thing at the moment. And we got to have that conversation aloud, respectfully and publicly. But, but I, I think there's more to be seen there, maybe from my perspective anyway, than, than there was 15 or 20 years ago. And maybe then it was happening and I just wasn't as aware of it. But do you see a shift there in how nonprofit, or, uh, especially in councils and organizations like this, move that conversation publicly about philanthropy? Yeah, I would say that there's a tension there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, our our ideal for nonprofits is that these are sort of creatures of the First Amendment. So Mm -hmm. freedom of speech, freedom of association, the right to uh, petition government for redress of grievances. So their nonprofits should be independent centers of initiative and creativity. They're sort of in a democracy. People are allowed to form organizations like this. Um, So, but how self-governing or how autonomous are they Uh, in the rub can be what you identified, which is resource dependency. Mm-hmm. Is if you're if A is dependent on B for resources, then B can exert control over the organization. So, are nonprofits independent centers of initiative and creativity, or sometimes they're subcontractors and having to do sort of comply with the conditions of funding. So it's both sort of relating to funding sources, whether it's government or foundations or high net worth donors, um, is a struggle for many organizations. And I would say that, you know, if if the challenge for groups like MCN is other issues as assigned, I would say <laughs> that is the that is a key issue right now is, you know, can these if you want to address, uh, say, equity uh, or racism mm-hmm. or climate, uh, you're going to have to sort of cope with your funding sources uh, and sort of achieve your own autonomy uh, to be a sort of a freestanding organization. Yeah. And MCN has long had a very strong public policy mission with great staff. Uh, again, some people there that we could name that have just done tremendous things for our state and Matt and others that have been so engaged uh, um, that we look at um, holding government accountable. And I remember some campaigns from maybe it's the mid-2000s or whatever, I, where we were doing literally posters and busboard kinds of things yeah. about getting people to understand um, what government was doing that was impacting nonprofits and how we would maybe not be able to deliver the services that they were counting on, understanding that relationship. And um, that was a little bit more holding government accountable than maybe had been done as publicly. I mean, it, literally, the, the busboards and all that kind of stuff were part of that. Um, here, I think as we look at philanthropy and especially as we continue along this higher and higher concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands, um, that holding that that accountability lens up again um, maybe becomes more important in the future as we go forward. That, uh, you know, it, it used to be that we thought that uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was really big, and, and now there are individuals that have substantially more wealth than that one foundation holds on to. And you're like, oh, my gosh, 
how do we frame what does it mean to use resources in community in a way when they continue to concentrate in fewer hands and the needs are continue to be very visible? One of those ways seems to me that um, we've had this conversation about donor advised funds and transparency there. Um, but others may eventually, and I don't know if this is something you see happening in the future, um, be a broader conversation about use of resources that aren't dedicated yet to philanthropy, where it isn't, you know, somebody put it into a donor advised funds thinking that eventually will be used for philanthropy someday, you know, whenever that happens. Um, but allocating resources as a society in places where there's no intention of using it for community need when there is increasing community need. No. And maybe we, as folks that see that community need, need to be out there in that conversation about is that really what we want as a community? And that's where, you know, sort of maybe the, the larger uh, challenge for nonprofits is like chambers of commerce, can they aggregate points of view and have their own view of function in the economy, the role of government, even of human nature? Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say one of those critical areas is attitudes towards tax policy. Right. Uh, and in some ways, the size of the nonprofit sector in English speaking countries is really due to tax preferences. Uh, sort of tax deductibility of charitable contributions, the fact that nonprofit property and income is not taxed uh, has allowed these organizations to grow. Uh, and at the same time, we can't expect them to sort of make up all the gaps left by sort of a market economy. Right. Well, and a collective way of thinking about how we use all of our community resources. And, and yeah. I think that that's a, a, a frame that maybe as we think about our organizations moving forward that, um, and, and you and I have had this conversation a couple of times, and I think I've shared it on this podcast like 15 times, that um, I was in a meeting once with uh, Alan Arthur, who is also retired now from his role at Aon Homes, um, where somebody said, we don't have enough money to do X, so we should you know, strategically, you know, and they were ready to move on to that conversation. And Alan had to jump in and said, oh, oh, there's enough money. We, we don't have it. No, but there's enough money to meet every need. Don't, don't for a moment let people off the hook with that conversation that there isn't enough. We collectively as a society are not choosing to use it to meet those needs. We are choosing to let people just hold on to it in large bank accounts because that's the decision we've made. It doesn't have to be that way, but it is how it is today. So now acknowledging that, let's go on to our strategic questions today. And, you know, you get into those things, but it does open that broader conversation about collectively as nonprofits have grown in the time you've seen them from um, really focused on how do we do better service delivery ourselves? How do we connect to community about that service delivery? But maybe even now to that point of how do we start talking about what's the important things that we together value and how do we support those? Some of them will always be charity. I think that that's a, a good role, but others could be thought of as, well, what if there was a fairer wage structure? What if, you know, wealth was taxed instead of only income? And right. These kinds of questions that collectively we're in a great position to help um, have a conversation, but we do need to do it together, I think. Um, so as you've seen those conversations shift and evolve over you know decades in your time now, is, is there a, a path um, continuing on that you see that people can be engaged in and in, in thinking through that? Or what do, you, what do you do next with that thought? Yeah, I think the, the, there has been 
sort of growth in that area. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember Gordon Voss, who used to be a state senator, uh, said that when he was at the Minnesota State Legislature, uh, when he was at the Social Services Committee, uh, he saw all the nonprofits come in to make their case. And when he was in the tax committee, all he saw were either the sort of tax advisors or the businesses. Mm. And now uh, one of MCN's projects has been the Minnesota Budget Project, uh, which has staff who are at every tax committee meeting. Uh, and there are other nonprofits there as well, recognizing that sort of the supply side of how resources get distributed in society is as important as expressing the needs and figuring out what what sort of the demands are. So uh, I've seen sort of growth in that area. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a hard situation. If we look at the nonprofit sector over the last 30 years uh, here in Minnesota, sort of the percent of the workforce within nonprofits has grown. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we also see sort of the gaps in education, in income, in assets right. have also grown. And so you know, we'd like to see the nonprofit sector being a part of a more equal society uh, and being a force for sort of greater participation and uh involvement right and getting that data constantly to people so that they yeah. can see and understand that has been one of the roles that council has just again as you said early on we wanted it to not just be one and done we wanted to be able to show over time and i've i have noted in particular with some gratification that our colleagues in the nonprofit sector are being more comparatively compensated come mm -hmm. to the um, for-profit and government sectors compared to how it used to be it is a sustainable job for some folks but as a whole society our way of thinking of how people are sustaining themselves and earning a living and whatnot hasn't been going well uh, so the sector is doing better for itself and and it's advocating and it's planning and it's doing and that's great but right maybe that now is getting to this point of how do we help take some of those learnings and those ideas beyond just people that work in charities to deliver better services but changing those outcomes uh, in community for people that maybe will never work for a nonprofit but want a healthy community to work in Right. And I think a good example is the minimum wage, which mm -hmm. is, you know, having minimal expectations for employers, MCN and a number of other nonprofits and labor unions certainly supported the increase in the state minimum wage so that we're now over $10 an hour and then $15 in Minneapolis and St. Paul. So it is, it's good to see the nonprofit sector you know, sort of on the side of reducing demand for some of its services. Right. <laughs> so, you know, having, you know, the biggest food shelves ever isn't really necessarily a complete success. Right. I, I think that's such a, such a good example of there will, in all likelihood, always be some unforeseen transitional need for that kind of charitable support, food shelves and, and emergency aid kinds of things. But it shouldn't be an ongoing <clears throat> excuse me, ongoing increased demand, you know, as a, a part of people's lives, like I'm always going to have to rely on this because mm -hmm. wages don't pay enough or rent is too high, all those kinds of pieces. And it's interesting to me to look at all of what has happened in your time with the council and all of what nonprofits have been able to do and then immediately go, that was good. Now what can we you know, step yeah. into? 
Um, we are running out of time, so I do want to just kind of ask you to have any thoughts about where do you think the collective vision of groups like the Council of Nonprofits or other collective action organizations like that move forward from here? Are there any particular um, tools or challenges that you see in the next coming years as you step out of that more active role? Well, I think, I mean, nonprofits are still at a middle stage of development, yeah. you know, so we're developed after business and after government. So they're, so we're still seeing substantial growth in sort of percent of the workforce, percentage of the economy. I think it is uh, sort of achieving the potential to influence sources of support, uh, coming to grips with uh, resource dependency issues. Uh, and having governing boards that really take charge. Yeah. And, you know, it's not simply a matter of balancing the budget, but it's figuring out what is it our community needs and having sort of breadth participation on those boards uh, so that it's truly representative of what communities need. Uh, last, just kind of more personal question. Uh, I think you're retaining kind of a, a senior consultant researcher title with the council like Marsha Avner did. And, and yes. uh, um, what, what, what do you see your continued connection in as you've stepped away from day-to-day management? Any projects or plans yet? Well, I will work on sort of the continued updates to sort of our foundation research, oh, okay. the nonprofit economy, uh, the, the wage uh, and benefit information. So it is, and then trying to inform our policy work and sort of, sort of help educate the nonprofit sector of, you know, answering those questions of what is happening now uh, and what still needs to be done. Well, nice to be able to do that and take time to read a book every now and again. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So congratulations on Thank a you. very successful uh, amount of work with a community that has really been very grateful for all of it. So thank you for doing that, John. No, it's been a, a great opportunity. Love working for MCN and look forward to seeing what happens next. Outstanding. Uh, John Pratt is the now retired executive director of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, but still an active consultant in some of those works. And John, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thank you.